That brings us to the next section. The next section is trials and the death of Jesus. This is chapter 22, verse 39, through chapter 23, verse 56. In this section, the Jewish religious leaders, the the Jewish religious leadership reveals themselves as truly being the enemies of Yahweh as they kill his son in an effort to secure their own power, which Yahweh had threatened. Yet Yahweh uses this to fulfill his plan for his son to die for the sins of the redemption of the world. This will then lead to their loss of power as it is transferred to those who are in Jesus and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus showing that the humans and the demonic world are all allied against, or they're, they're lined up against him. They're opposed to him. They want to destroy him. Yet in the end, he's using them all to fulfill his purposes and plans. And as they're trying to protect their power and cling to it, and they're willing to kill him to maintain their power, his death is actually going to transfer their power to his people, his followers. Now, no, the the church will never truly have political dominant power. And one of the greatest things that has hurt the American church is when the evangelicals started seizing power and uniting themselves into government. And that's when they begin to blur the lines between politics and religion and all that kind of stuff. But what Jesus is saying is that you're not going to have the power to dominate and control everything. That doesn't really change things. Because all you need is for that power to lose power, and then everybody uprises against it. You're going to be given the power to change lives, to change worldviews, to shift cultures. And that's exactly what Christianity has done when they fight the sex slave trade and, and slavery and, and, and child slavery and they fight for women's rights and they fight against abortion and, and they do. They change worldviews and they change lives. And, then, and, and those are the big issues. But then there's all the little things of people struggling to know where they even fit in and belong and what is their purpose and meaning in life which, in a way, those are just as big as the other things, even though we don't see them that way. Chapter 22, verse 39. Then Jesus went out and made his way, as he customarily did, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And so he went away from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. He takes them to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, so remember, the temple is at the top of the hill of Jerusalem. And as you move to the east, it drops down into a valley. It drops down into a valley, okay? And then it goes, that's called the Kidron Valley. And then it moves up the Mount of Olives. The Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives is covered with olive trees. And olive trees have giant trunks and they look like all these like sinews going around them. And interesting thing about an olive tree, they're they're almost they're pretty much eternal. Um, I mean, you can kill an olive tree, but olive trees don't die if they don't have men and women interfering with that. But an olive tree literally grows up, and then when it begins, and it can live for about a thousand or two thousand years, and then at the end of that, it'll begin to die. But as the trunk and the branches die, the roots send up new branches and that becomes the new tree and so it's still technically the same tree it's just the tree is dying and the the shoot and that's why isaiah says a shoot from jesse will rise back up after the assyrians and the babylonians cut them down 
And the idea is an olive, you can literally cut down an olive tree and it'll, the roots will start growing up again. So you have to actually bronze it or tar it or dig it up in order to prevent it from growing again. So now there's only about five olive trees on the Mount of Olives today um, because men and women have interfered with them. But at this time, it was an entire forest. And so these, he is there in the night, and he goes a stone's throw away, which means he's going far enough away that he's isolated and one with the Father, but he's still within eyeshot that they can see the example that he's setting for them. And they should know what they're supposed to be doing because he's doing it over there. And he prays. And he says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Yet not my will be done, but yours. Now this is significant because what he's talking about is the cup of wrath. And the reason he refers to it as the cup of wrath, as a cup, is because all throughout the prophets, God referred to the judgment that he was bringing called the day of Yahweh, which came through the Assyrians and came through the Babylonians. And the prophets made it very clear that there were many days of Yahweh yet to come and there was going to be an ultimate day of Yahweh, where basically the day of Yahweh is a double-edged sword. With one edge of the sword, it destroys and judges and defeats the sins and evil people and, and, and exiles them. But with the other edge of the sword, he cuts them away from the evil people and sin and redeems them and brings deliverance and salvation. Because a sword can either destroy people or free people from slavery and corruption or oppression. And so that's the day of Yahweh. It's a double-edged sword. And so on this day, the judgment of God is going to be poured upon him, but it's going to lead to the deliverance of us. And so when he prays, take that cup away, that's what he's referring back is to the prophets. But he's also referring to the cup of judgment that they just drank as symbolic in the Passover meal of the judgment on Egypt. But now he's going to become the new Egypt. He's going to become the Egypt for all people, for all sins. And so he's praying, listen, I don't want to drink this. Now this is really significant. Because this is where you truly see the humanity of Christ. And not that the Godhood and the humanity are separate things and two sides of a coin, but languages are lacking in how you describe things. But this is where you see the humanity of Christ because this is where you see, even though that Jesus is perfect and he has no flaws and he is God, he's basically saying, I don't want to die. I've seen crucifixions. I think one of the most powerful scenes in the movie Chosen is eerie, um, is when Jesus is walking into the city and he just kind of looks over and he sees these men getting crucified. And it's, a very, it's like season one. It's the very beginning of his ministry. And you see getting crucified and everything's been jolly and happy and the disciples are kind of joking around. And he's laughing and smiling. And all of a sudden the music kind of gets like tonal and slow and the, everything slows down and he just kind of looks at it and just stares at it and keeps walking and then it speeds back up again and he's pulled back into the, the happy cheerfulness of the disciples he goes to the city and it's like that was like it was like holy crap because we know what's coming and he knows what's coming and you had to remember if you're a Jew you, if you live in the Roman Empire unless you're out in the middle of the country and hardly ever come in but if you're in the city you've seen crucifixions multiple times and, and, he, and he knows like as he's watching this, not only is he seeing his own children that he's willing to die for being crucified in a horrific way, but he also knows that's coming for him one day. The crucifixion by historians and medical doctors consider this one of the worst 
ways that humans have ever come up with of how to kill a human. And, and, and he knows it's coming. And he's like, I don't want to do that. And what he's basically saying is, I want to disobey you. I mean, you've commanded. I mean, I mean, I know it seems odd to say it that way, but if God says die and he says, I don't want to die, then he's basically saying, I don't want to obey you. Okay, but at the same time he does because he says not my will. But but there's a very real thing in him is saying, I want to disobey. I want to run away. I want to hide. I want to be comfortable. I want to be safe. Like that feeling that you and I have, he gets it. He has felt it, which means that feeling is not a sin. That desire to walk away, that desire to just choose the easy route, to be comfortable and to be safe and not do that difficult thing that God wants you to do, um, to run away from your kids because you don't want to be, you feel like, I can't be a parent anymore. I can't handle this anymore. I quit. I feel like that he gets that. He gets that. And he has great sympathy for it. And this is what Hebrews chapter 4 is saying, is that he is tempted along all points of the scale, knowing exactly what we've gone through and can have compassion for us. But even in all, the, and I can't even imagine the turmoil. I mean, I know the turmoil I have faced at different times in life, but that, that's nothing compared to the cross. And all that, he basically says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, this is a shortened version of the prayer that he taught them to pray. Your will. Ultimately, my greater and more ultimate desire is to obey you and follow you because I trust you, because you're good. You're good, and you're capable. And this is the most ultimate example of faith. A very genuine, honest, I don't want to follow you, God, right now. I don't want to do what you want me to do. The emotions in me are overwhelming that I am to the point that I want to run away. And there's no judgment. There's no condemnation. There's no sin. There's no failure. There's no shame on his part. And yet at the end, he says, but not my will, your will. Because my greater love ultimately is not my comfort, but what you want me to do. And there's no shame in those feelings. This is the, the whole book we went through, Psalms. This is the whole point of Psalms. They're pouring out some really ugly feelings and thoughts to God. And not only does God not rebuke them, he immortalizes it in the word of God as this is how you shall pray. But the Psalms always end with this, but I will trust in you. I have no idea how I'm going to do that. I don't know how this is going to work out. I know it's not going to be comfortable. I know I may not like it in the way it feels, but I will trust in you because you're good and you're able. And that's, that's, this is how we pray. This is set before us in the word of God in Psalms and other places throughout people's lives like Daniel and stuff. But it's also set before us as the perfect God-man, Jesus, who did it in the garden. And so this shows you the angst and the turmoil and the overwhelming sense of feelings he has to feel in order to do this. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So God sends an angel to comfort him. Remember, in the wilderness, Satan said, Oh, but Psalms says that God will not allow anything bad to happen to you, so prove that you trust in God by throwing yourself off, and he'll protect you. But Psalms in that context also says those who hope and trust in Yahweh. 
God will come and deliver you and take care of you. And so Jesus says, you will not put the word, the Lord, the word, the Lord of God to your test. And then the minute he did not test God and he trusted in God and hoped in him, then when the devil left, it said that the God sent angels to take care of him, fulfilling Psalms. Now Jesus say, I don't want to die. I want to disobey you. I really don't want to do this. But then he says, your will be done. And all of a sudden God sends the angels to give him the ability to get through it. Now remember, yes, he's God and he doesn't need anybody's help, but he's also human. And, and remember, even God has companionship in the Trinity. And God, looking at Adam, who was perfect and had God, says it's not good for him to be alone. He needs companionship. And so even Jesus is giving companionship through the angels. And then it says that he was sweating like blood. Now remember, this is a simile. Now, I know there are doctors who have said it is technically possible that you can be so like strained and in angst that your capillaries can burst and the blood can come out. However, it says like, like. It's a simile. And the point is not that he's doing this medical phenomenon. Is the point is that he is so in angst that he's sweating so profusely that it is as if he is bleeding. Okay, and the idea is that he is sweating big time. And I don't know how many of us have really prayed to the point that we're sweating. I mean, other if you're a Dominican Republic having a prayer meeting but, or a Cuba. But, but as far as being angst, actual angst, that you're in AC and you're sweating to death. Not to death, sorry. I don't know where that came from. You're sweating profusely. And so this shows you the great angst that he's in. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping exhausted from grief. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. So there's that rebuke. My goodness, I'm about ready to die. And I'm facing the greatest struggle of my entire life right now. In some ways, the garden is the beginning of the struggle. But even there's a sense of point of no return once you go to the cross. And you're, you're sleeping. And I get that you're human. And I get that you can only do so much. But my goodness, get up. And it's also been four years of being with them. So his patience is kind of worn out on them. Chapter 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking, suddenly a crowd appeared. And the man named Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He walked up to Jesus and kissed him. And when Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now remember, a kiss is a, a greeting. It's a, it's a greeting of hospitality. Welcome, come into my house. I will take care of you. I will feed you. I will give you a drink and that kind of stuff. And yet he's using it to kill Jesus, which is an absolute violation of hospitality. Hospitality is a huge part of the Eastern culture, even today. And it is incredibly shaming for the rest of your life to violate the customs of hospitality. And when you bring someone under your roof into hospitality, you are putting them under your roof of protection. We saw this in Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot and even with judges at the end when they come in and want to violate sexually the guests and they're like, no, take my people of my family instead. No, that's still jacked up that they're willing to do that, but it shows you how greatly they value hospitality. And so Judas is com committing a horrible, grievous sin, 
culturally speaking, by inter- bringing him into hospitality just to betray him and kill him. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. This is an ultimate act of betrayal. Especially since Judas is one of his disciples, has been with him for four years. When those who were around him saw what was about to happen, they said, Lord, should we use our swords? Then one of them struck the high priest's slave, cutting his right ear. They didn't wait for Jesus' response. Should we use our swords? Ah, I just, already. It also shows you how horrible soldiers they are. Not only do they only have two swords, maybe they went out and bought some more at the dollar store, but they don't know how to use them. Because he's going to try to hit his neck or head or whatever he's trying to aim, and he comes down and away from the head to get the ear. Like, if you think about it, the only way you can just get somebody's ear is that you have to be coming down on them, and you also have to be moving away from their body because it, it would have said they would have gone into his shoulder or neck, and then he would have cut an artery and be going everywhere, and Jesus would have had to do a lot more than just put an ear back on, which means you're pathetic. You're absolutely pathetic. Now, I'm not a master swordsman, so I'm not saying that as like, I can do one better, Peter, but I actually think I could. But here's the thing. Uh, but that's still because point to the fact that this is pathetic. There, there, there's no hope of them being able to go against Rome. Jesus said, enough of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Now, it doesn't even say that he reattached it, just that he touched it and healed it. That would almost be a very interesting miracle when you're looking down your ear on the floor, but your, your ear's also there. Okay? Now, I don't know if that's what happened, but outside of the box, that's a possibility. So he touches, he heals them. Now, this is important because this is the high priesthood who is in league with Satan in order to kill Jesus, the servant of God, because they want power. And get Jesus saying, I'm willing to redeem you even. Even you. I'm willing to redeem. This is the lesson that he's trying to teach his disciples. And Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers in the temple guard, and the elders who had come to get him, have you come out with swords and clubs like you would against an outlaw? Day after day, when I was with you in the temple courts, you did not arrest me. But this is your hour, and that the power of darkness. And that of the power of darkness. So basically, Jesus is basically saying, you cowards. I am not some rebel freedom fighter that has been hiding in the mountains and woods in guerrilla warfare like your Hasimonian leaders back in the intertestamental history that you have just finally through your intelligence and spies finally discover me that you had to come into my lair and arrest me nor have I presented any kind of tactics against you that you would have to come with weapons I have been someone who barely even has a purse of money to my name let alone weapons, who've been in the streets every single day, open before everyone, without any kind of violence or protest against anything. And yet this is how you come to arrest me? You cowards. This is your hour, though. And this is the hour of the power of darkness, Satan, that you've allied yourself with. But notice that he says, this is your hour. That's all you get. Now, that's not literal, but it's almost like this is your 15 minutes of fame. And then after that, you're done. This is all you get. This is what God is giving you. Jesus was arrested after dark. 
as we go through these events, I'm going to kind of lay out what time of the day these things would have been. Somewhere before, as sun was setting and going into the night, they would have the Passover meal. Jesus then goes in the garden and prays for X amount of hours. He is then arrested and, and brought Mark. So Matthew 26, verse 50, Mark 14, verse 46, Luke 22, 54, and John 18, 3, and verse 12 make it very clear that Jesus is arrested after dark. This could have occurred anywhere between 10 p.m. and 11 a.m. And we know that it has to be done by 11, 12 a.m. because the trial has to be done and over with by 6 a.m. We know that he was probably brought out for trial or the mini trials around 3 a.m. And we'll get to that later. So somewhere between 12 p.m., because remember, it's, it's in the, 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 the summer season, so dark is more around 9 o'clock like it is in our summers. So somewhere between 10 and 12 o'clock is when he is getting arrested. So they're coming out literally in the middle of the night to arrest him. Jesus was taken to Annas first, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. This is made clear by John 18, verse 12. So Caiaphas is the current high priest. He's the leader of them all. But before him was Annas. Annas is his father-in-law. And Annas had been high priest for a very long time. Now, one of the jobs of the Roman prefect, and we talked about this in intertestamental history, is that Herods were ruling, but Herod, um, when the Herods messed up tremendously and they decided to replace him with a Roman prefect, someone who actually had Roman citizenship, served in the Roman military, and could rule on Rome's behalf without any kind of mixed allegiances. And so he was put in charge. And there's been multiple prefixes before we've gotten to Pilate. Pilate, I think, is three or four. I can't remember the exact number. And they are in charge of picking the high priests. Basically, politics. Not according to the line of Aaron, until you die and then replaced by your son, but whatever the Roman prefect wants. And one of the jobs is a lot of them would sack them every year. They basically, the next year, they get rid of them and get a new high priest. Get rid of them. And the whole point was to destabilize the Jewish religious political leadership so that they could never get a foothold deep enough to threaten the Roman power there. Pilate comes along and he appoints Annas. And he must have really liked Annas. And Annas must have been really good at compromising with Rome because he kept Annas for a very long time. But then there's some. Not very totally clear, but Annas then probably most likely got to an age where he didn't want to do this anymore. And so Annas was able to appoint one of his own sons. And then, um, so Pilate must have liked him. Um, actually, it was the prefect before Pilate who had Annas there. And Annas appointed one of his sons, but then the prefect sacked them a year later. So Annas appointed another son, and then he got sacked. And then he went to his nephew, or sorry, his son-in-law. Um, Caiaphas is his son-in-law. So he went to his son-in-law and he appointed him. And Caiaphas stayed there for multiple years. So he must have also. However, they still looked at Annas. Annas still was the real power behind Caiaphas. And Caiaphas would make a lot of decisions. But when it would come to something this big, this political, Caiaphas is looking to Annas. So he goes to Annas first and then Caiaphas to basically let the Jews know that the Godfather and the guy who's taking over the Godfather's position one day are both in agreement with each other. Because this is so big that nobody trusts the Godfather to be 
to really, really make the ultimate decision here. So he goes to Annas first in this trial. Jesus was then taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, and the elders and the teachers of the law. So he would have had a private meeting with Annas where he basically says, yeah, and then they would send to Caiaphas and all the other teachers of the law, and this is where he would be put on trial. Verse 54, Then they arrested Jesus and led him away and brought him to the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. So Luke skips the Annas part and goes straight to the Caiaphas part. But Peter was following at a distance, and when they had made a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And then a slave girl, seeing him as he sat, sat at the firelight, stared at him, seeing him as he sat, sorry, then a slave girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man was with him too. But Peter denied it. Woman, I do not know him. Then a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are the one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour, still another insisted, and certainly this man was with him because he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And at that moment, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is a powerful scene because this is the Peter says, I'm with you to the very end. I've got a sword. I'm ready to fight the Romans with you. And then a teeny little girl says, you're one of them. He's like, no. Okay. And so that realization that he couldn't even stand up against a few people just in the courtyard that had no political power of any kind of a sense. And he was willing to walk away from Christ and betray him and disown him that would be so upsetting not only does he betray the people the man that he loves and and wants to be like more than anybody else has committed and sacrificed everything for him but he couldn't even withstand the pressure of a little girl and so he weeps bitterly at that but also notice he's within eye shot of jesus like they can look at each other so jesus is in this prison makeshift prison whatever that looks like and he's being on, put on trial or being in a holding cage, at least for a while. And they can look at each other. So it means Peter was trying to get as close as he possibly could because he wanted to be there for Jesus. He wanted to see what was going to happen to him. But when it came to really saying, I'm with him, he couldn't handle it. This is the difference already. Already before Peter is comes back and says, I want to be with you, Jesus, after the crucifixion, all that kind of stuff, you already see a huge difference between Judas and Peter. Judas is literally plotting and premeditating the betrayal of Jesus. Judas is singled out by Jesus as, I know who you are and what you're going to do, and he still goes into it. Judas even goes to the garden and walks right up to Christ and kisses him with the soldiers there and backs up. And yet Peter is only denying under extreme emotional pressure. In the middle of the night, and really stressed out, which is not always our best hours. And even then, he immediately weeps bitterly when he looks at Jesus in the eyes. Peter, Judas can go right up to Jesus, look in the eyes and kiss him, and walk away and be okay. But Peter, at a distance, barely catches the eyes of Christ and immediately collapses. And this, 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 this pain, this sense of betrayal. 
And this shows you the difference. And just like we had this comparison between Saul and David, both were kind of scumbags. They both killed people. They extorted people. And David even raped a woman and, and killed a whole group of people to cover it up and cut the head off of a man and carried it around as a trophy. Yet one is not a man after God's own heart, and the other one is. Because when Paul Saul was called out, he justified it and rationalized it and had no remorse. But when David was called out, he always broke down in absolute remorse and repentance and, 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 and anxiety over what he had done. And this is what we see. Is Judas and Peter are like another Saul and David. And what Christ looks at in Peter is not that he failed, but the heart of Peter that still loves God and wants to be with him. And this is what it means to love and be a man or a woman after God's own heart. This is still all in the middle of the night. And I know some people are like, wait a minute, the rooster's crowing though. The roosters crow when they see the sunrise. Therefore, it must be sunrise. But if anybody's ever had roosters, you know that's completely wrong. And I was coming to say, we actually house set at a farm last summer, and the roosters crowed way before the sunrise. It's absolutely annoying. And they did it pretty much every single morning. And it was like we, we were lying there, and we'd be like, don't they know what they're supposed to do? And they knew that was common before that happened, but I never experienced it until then. I was like, you suck. Roosters crow whenever they want to crow, basically. There's no connection whatsoever. I don't know who came up with that. It was obviously not a farmer. Verse 63. 